This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. So we've come to the end of this this letter, and um, in many ways, this is perhaps one of the most personal and affectionate letters that Paul writes in the New Testament. And the reason for that is because there's been a long history with this Philippian church and with Paul. He tells us in this passage we'll study this morning that they've been partnering with him in the gospel from the very beginning. And more than that, he knows that he faces the prospect of death as he's writing from prison. And so in this letter, he's been giving us these good examples. Some of them are his own example. Uh, But he closes by giving us an example uh, from the Philippian church themselves, by commending what they have done in their partnership with him to us. In in the preceding passage, verses 10 through 13, he's been commending to us his own example of Christian contentment, of being content with what we have. But he doesn't stop there. He, He now commends to us the example of the Philippians' generosity. That is, not only being content with what we have, but being generous towards others. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard enough for me in my day-to-day life just to be content with what the Lord gives me on many occasions, let alone to be generous to other people. What, What motivation is great enough for us to be not only content, but generous with what we have? Well, Paul, Paul shows us the motivation in this passage this morning. If you're able, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word. We'll be studying verses 14 through 23, but we'll begin in verse 10 for context. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come among us again. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand and rightly apply your word this morning. Most of all, overwhelm us with your grace towards us in Jesus Christ that we might be able to be generous towards others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
maybe you can bear with me for one more running illustration with you uh, this summer. Uh, several months ago, I, I read a fascinating book. It's called Running with the Kenyans, uh, Discovering the, the Secrets of the Fastest People on Earth. And it was written by a writer and runner who lives in the UK who literally picked up his entire life. He moved his, his work and his life and his whole family to Kenya for six months to live and train among the Kenyans just so he could figure out what is it that makes, what, what is it that contributes to their just absolute dominance of the sport of running, especially long distance running. He noted several different things that contributed to that. But he also noticed one very unfortunate trend among those Kenyan runners. So they would be, they'd be training there in Kenya and they'd be noticed by a sponsor. And the sponsor would send them to some other country to compete in an international race. And they would win or place very highly in the race such that they, uh, they gained a lot of prize money. And then they would come back to Kenya and they would immediately start uh, putting that money to use. They'd start a business buy a house, a car, start a farm, whatever it might be. And he says, inevitably, for several of them, one thing happened. Their interests began to be divided. They got so focused on this wealth and using it in different ways that they stopped focusing on running and their performance declined. To put it simply, uh, because they became so focused on the gift itself, they lost the source of the gift. Now, this is certainly not the case with all the runners there, except uh, especially one runner in particular. His name is Elliot Kipchoge. You may uh, remember his name. He's currently the world record holder for the marathon. And in two weeks' time, he'll compete in Tokyo for the gold in the marathon there. Kipchoge has only ever entered one race that he has not won first place in. And so you can imagine he's, he's gained lots of prize money from this, not to mention his um, endorsements with Nike for running. But if you visit Kipchoge's home in Kenya, as some documentarians did a few years ago, you don't see a lavish lifestyle, fancy cars, a nice house, all of those things. What you do see is a lot of other younger runners and those runners are there because Kipchoge supports them out of his own wealth. He provides food and nutrition for them to run. He provides running gear out of his endorsement with Nike and companionship in their training to become better runners. And he continues to be the fastest man on earth. This, this contrast that the author notes in this book highlights a reality that's true for all of us. And that is... When we receive a gift and we use it only on ourselves, we only ever get diminishing returns. But when we receive gifts from others and immediately turn and in generosity extend them to other people and share that with others, we receive it back in godly kind and greater measure, as one author has said. Paul is saying in this passage a similar thing. He's saying, I have been abundantly supplied. I have more than I need. And this same God who's provided all of my needs will provide all of yours as well. And so, because we have more than we need, but because we have been provided for abundantly in Jesus Christ, we must then turn and share with others. Or to say it another way, if you want true and lasting joy in this life, you must share that joy 
with other people. Paul doesn't just hold up this example. He shows us the motivation that enabled them to live this way. He gives us several different reasons in this passage that accounted for the Philippians' radical generosity in the church. The first is that when we participate in giving, when we are generous towards others, we become equal participants in God's work in the world. When we are generous toward other people, we become equal participants in God's work in the world. You know, the Philippians certainly had many reasons not to be generous. We know from other places in Scripture that they were actually a, a pretty poor church. They didn't have a lot. But he says that they continued to give out of their poverty. More than that, he's just finished telling them that he is going to be supplied all he needs by God. Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And so the Philippians very easily could have said, well, if God's going to provide all your needs, why should we, out of our poverty, be generous towards you? God will, God will take care of it. And then he also says, you remember, you yourselves know, Philippians, that you only, you alone out of all the churches, partnered with me in giving and receiving. They very easily could have said something like, well, if nobody else is going to join in this mission, why should I? Or left it up to other people and said, somebody else will take care of it. The Philippians had lots of reasons not to be generous towards Paul and his mission. So what can account for their generosity? One comes in this curious phrase that Paul uses. He said, you've partnered with me in giving and receiving. Kind of a curious phrase. It, it could just mean that they were, they were giving and Paul was receiving. But I believe that Paul is actually saying that both parties are both giving and receiving. Both Paul and the Philippians are actively giving and receiving in this partnership. And the reason I believe that is because later on, when he's extending these greetings at the very end of the letter, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, remember, Paul's in prison under the authority of Caesar in Rome. And so what this means, if people from Caesar's own household are greeting these other Christians, that as Paul has been imprisoned and ministering in his imprisonment there, people have been coming to Christ, even in Caesar's own household. In other words, the most powerful empire on earth at the time is being infiltrated from the inside because the Philippians have continued to partner with Paul in his ministry of the gospel. You see, if they hadn't partnered, they would have never got to share in that joy of seeing that happen. We just saw the Milwaukee Bucks win the NBA championship. And a few days later, when they came back to Milwaukee and they're going down Main Street for their parade, thousands of fans are lining the street. And they're not all saying, you did it, you, you did it. They're saying, we won. We did it, even though they didn't score a single point to accomplish that victory. That's what we get to participate in as Christians, when we're generous with others and, and so become participants in God's work in the world. You know, just 250 years later, Rome would have been so infiltrated by Christianity that historians look back on it and say that it was essentially a Christian nation at the time. I have to believe that that work began here with Paul in the book of Philippians, infiltrating Caesar's own household. And the only reason he could do that is because the Philippians were supporting him in, in that work. It shows you and I that when we don't 
uh, give, when we are not generous to others, we only rob ourselves. God is going to provide for his work in the world no matter what. And it's only up to us whether or not we're going to participate and, show, and so share in the joy he has to offer us by becoming those equal participants, those fellow partakers of grace, as Paul puts it in chapter 1. So they were generous out of their poverty because they, they wanted to be a part of this work. They were also generous because they realized that in giving to Paul, in being generous towards him, they were at the same time giving to God. In giving to Paul, they were at the same time giving to God. He says that you've continued over and over, even in Thessalonica, you, you supplied for my needs. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. This is, uh, this is banking language. If, if you have an ESV, it might put in the footnote, I seek the profit that accrues to your account. He's essentially making a play on words here about investing. And we know that the only way to reap the benefits of a particularly lucrative investment or stock is to put our money in it early and often to, to invest our money so that we might reap the returns. And so what he's saying is that by giving to me, you are actually building up your own account, building up your own credit. No one's, no one's losing in this ordeal. You're, you're giving, and in your giving, you're receiving back. Proverbs shows us what this, uh, what this is like. It says in Proverbs 11, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Now, this isn't, this isn't a prosperity gospel way of talking such that if you give in faith, you will, God will make you rich. It could be that by, by giving and, and getting rid of our money that we find the source of true joy is not in wealth, but in, in having God himself. But there's another image that Paul gives us here that shows us exactly what he means. He says, when you sent me this gift through Epaphroditus, it became a, a pleasing offering to God, a fragrant aroma and sacrifice to God. You see the image there. They gave to Paul, but the, the, the sacrifice was, was given to God. And this language is directly from the Old Testament. Remember when Noah came out of the ark and God delivered he and his family. The first thing he does is he offers a sacrifice. And Genesis 8 told us that when he offered that sacrifice of, of thanks for God for saving he and his family, the smoke rose to the heavens and became a pleasing aroma to God. Leviticus goes on to tell us about these sacrifices. Some were made to atone for sins, but some were thanksgiving or praise sacrifices, such that when God had been faithful and generous to someone in their own lives, they would offer a thanksgiving sacrifice in gratitude to, to praise God for what he had done for them. It's why, it's why some men will go into debt to buy an engagement ring, right? They want so deeply for this woman whom they are going to propose to, to know how much she means to them, how much they cherish her and love her and are grateful for her. That financial logic just goes out the window for a time. That's the image here. We give to others. It increases to our account so that we might have more to express our gratitude to God. This is not a works righteousness, but a, a thanksgiving of the righteousness and all the gifts that God has given to us. 
It's a fragrant offering to God. It shows us that, that God doesn't pry our money from our fingers. He's not guilting us into giving. He's overwhelming us with his grace and his love and his generosity towards us so that the only logical response that we can make is to turn and give to others as a sacrifice of praise back to God. That's the only, that's the, Christianity is the only religion that gives us that image of gratitude, begetting gratitude, begetting giving and generosity. And so Paul has explained the Philippians' radical generosity in the face of poverty by showing us that they, they knew that they were becoming equal participants in God's work. That in giving to him, they were, they were offering a pleasing sacrifice to God. And what ultimately could account for it is that they knew and had a profound conviction that God was going to provide everything that they needed. They knew that they were well supplied for and taken care of. And so they could always extend more generosity. Let me show you where I see that. Isn't it interesting that Paul, when he is talking to them in verse 19, he says, my God will supply every need of yours. Of course, it was their God too. So why say my God? Well, remember, in just the preceding passage, he's just got done telling them that God is going to provide everything that he needs. And so he's essentially saying, this same God that's going to provide for me, my God, is going to provide for you as well. And the added significance of this is that, remember, Paul is in prison. And so Paul, he can't reciprocate their giving. He can't even come and be a guest preacher for them. He can't do anything. He's in prison. All he can do is receive but he says, you've given to me and I can't reciprocate your giving, but my God will. And what that shows us, brothers and sisters, is that you and I can afford to give to others who can never afford to pay us back. We can always be generous to other people who can never afford to pay us back because we know that we have a God who will pay us back one way or another, this side of heaven or in heaven. God will give to us all that we need to be generous to others. More than that, he says that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's just another way of saying what he's already said in Romans 8, which is that God, who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give you all things? If God was willing not to withhold his only son, we have assurance, deep, profound assurance that he is going to provide. He'll go to any means possible to provide Everything that we need. I have uh, some neighbors who live across the street from me who are some of the most generous people that I know. They're those type of people who you can be uh, out in the yard working on some project and very shortly after they're coming across the street with a, either a helping hand or usually a better tool than I have to do the job. And they're always looking for ways to serve us with a meal or, or whatever it is. And I saw this generosity on display in a, in a new way around Christmas this past year. There was a young couple who was knocking door to door uh, in our neighborhood. And they, uh, they just didn't have anything and they were, they were in need. And so my friends, at risk to themselves with, with COVID and everything else, welcomed them into their home. And they made them a hot breakfast to eat. They let them use their shower. And then as the husband, as the wife was preparing breakfast and the husband was going out to the garage to find a pair of boots for this young man to wear. This couple slipped the car keys off the ring, slipped out the front door, 
and took off with the car and two laptops. I was indignant about those people, that they would presume on that generosity in such a way and take advantage of those people. And certainly my neighbors were hurt and angry as well. But you know, a few days later, I was talking to the wife. I was talking to her about what happened, and she said, I'm not going to let it keep me from loving people. I'm not going to stop being generous to people. Only a person who knows that God would go to any means necessary, even giving him, her his only son, would be able to say a thing like that, would be able to not become jaded and frustrated, but continue to give and be generous, even when she's been taken advantage of and abused and stolen from. It shows us, brothers and sisters, that, that we can afford to be generous and give to others even when we might get burned, even when someone may not deserve it, even when it might turn out to be a bad deal for us, because we, we know the God who owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills and will always provide what we need. And perhaps the most profound assurance that we have that God will provide for us is that Paul says, not only my God will supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus, but then he, he switches and he says, not only my God, but our Father. We can be assured of God's provision for us because he is our Father. And remember in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says that one who does not provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever and is denied the faith. And God's law written in Scripture is just an extension of his own character. And so what that means for us is that God has bound himself to provide everything that we need, such that if he doesn't, he would deny his very self, something he cannot and will not do. God's character as a father, as our father, is the assurance that he will provide everything that we need, even at the ultimate cost to himself. You don't have to be a father or even a parent to appreciate this kind of an image. Just think of somebody that you love very, very dearly, whose hurts become your hurts, whose needs and desires become your own, who you just naturally take on to yourself. This is the image that we have of God as our Father. And it enables us to be generous in such a way that we don't just react to people's needs and respond when they're presented to us. But no, we go and we actively seek them out. What do these, what do these people need? What are, they, what are they in need of? And how can I or the, or the people that I'm connected with help to meet those needs and be generous towards that? That's the, that's the image of generosity that God gives to us. And just as we began with the doxology, that's how Paul ends this passage as well. He's been meditating on the fact that God supplies all our needs and he breaks into praise in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's how it all ends, isn't it? We participate in generosity because it's the way that we praise God. Revelation chapter 4 provides another image that kind of extends the one that Paul has been building for us here. In Revelation 4, John, who's been given this vision, sees the elders before the throne. And what they're doing is they're taking off their crowns that have been given to them for persevering until the end. And they're laying them at the feet of Jesus. Actually, they're casting them down at the feet of Jesus at the throne of God in gratitude for all that he's done for them. And so here's the image, brothers and sisters. God, because he is our father, provides everything 
that we need. And in grateful response, we give to others. And that gift to others becomes a sacrifice of praise to God. But not only that, it makes us equal participants in God's work in the world. And in, in response to that, God gives us a crown of righteousness that we receive when we reach heaven. And what do we do with that crown but take it right back off and lay it at the feet of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, there is no other image in all the world like that one, where generosity begets generosity to another, begets thanksgiving and praise, such that no one ever keeps what he has received, but willingly gives it up to another, and willingly gives it back to the Father in praise for all that he's given us, namely in Christ Jesus. That's the motive for generosity, such that when we reach the end of our lives and we come before the throne of God, we want so deeply to have a crown worthy of laying down at the feet of the one who's given all for us. In 1880, a Presbyterian pastor named James Russell Miller wrote a book called Weekday Religion. And it's, uh, it's just practically applying the gospel to life. And he has a great chapter, uh, chapter 31, that's called Beautiful Old Age. And he's doing this very thing. He's, he's imagining the end of life and what we ought to want to look back on. What would be our legacy as we look back on our life? And this is what he says. We must live a useful life. Nothing good ever comes out of idleness or out of selfishness. The standing water stagnates and breeds decay and death. It is the running stream that keeps pure and sweet. The fruit of an idle life is never joy and peace. Years lived selfishly never become garden spots in the field of memory. Happiness comes out of self-denial for the good of others. Sweet always are the memories of good deeds done and sacrifices made. Their incense, like heavenly perfume, comes floating up from the fields of toil and fills old age with holy fragrance. When one has lived to bless others, one has many grateful, loving friends whose affection proves a wondrous source of joy when the days of feebleness come. Bread cast upon waters is found again after many days. Brothers and sisters, if we want this true and lasting joy that Paul has been committing to us over and over in this letter, we must be those who, who meditate on all that we've been given in Christ Jesus and immediately turn and generously give that to others. That's the way to true and lasting joy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.